Hey there, my name's Victoria Stiles and you're listening to 1066 Wasn't All That, which is a podcast about how history gets written. With each interview, I try to take a look behind the big events, ideas and upheavals you might have heard about, those Battle of Hastings moments, and explore some of the questions of evidence and analysis which historians and other researchers tackle in their work. In other words, how do we know what we think we know about the past? And to prove the lengths I will go to for this podcast, I'm recording this introduction in a hotel in Vienna, which is both where I got to know my interviewee for this episode and, as you're about to hear, is thematically appropriate to the topics he researches. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I'm Alex Marshall. I'm a new lecturer in German and um, basically academic English at Sheffield Hallam University. Um, my main areas of research are um, my well, my PhD was on early Zionism and concepts of nationhood. So my main area of research is sort of long 19th century nationalism. There's a on, on top of that, there's few things about sort of Jewish identity politics and anti-Semitism, um, Habsburg Empire, utopianism, anti-modernity, and I've done a my first published article was on um, was basically on Theodore Herzl's jokes. And I can't believe that I haven't read it because that sounds amazing, and I'm going to have to go look it up. None of them are very well. He's got like one good joke. It's a really good joke, but he's he's basically just got the one good one. But it milks it for all he can? No, it's... I mean, the the reason... I mean, there's a lot of research on Herzl. Um, and so it's quite difficult to find a niche, uh, a niche thing to say about him on account of, you know, he's an Israeli national hero and everyone's researched him. And I thought he was a deeply unfunny man in many, many ways who didn't particularly like jokes, but he did tell some so this is an area that basically no one had researched but that was still there so yeah if you if you want to find a niche find someone who doesn't particularly like jokes and look at their jokes that is some very good advice so there's a lot of quite big ideas that you've mentioned there Mm. i wonder is there one particular idea about this period that people might have that sort of dominates what they think about it maybe not so much this period but about nationalism um so i think you know we nowadays we are quite um we're quite critical about nationalism um there's a i think it was uh, eric hobsbawm in one of in his uh, book on nationalism he kind of ends it saying uh, he, he he says that the owl of minerva um, as Hegel said, the owl of Minerva flies out at dusk and it seems to be circling nationalism. And we have this idea that we've understood nationalism and everyone before the, um, you know, especially before the First World War, were just, you know, jingoistic, just getting into it. They didn't realise what they were doing, almost mm. like they were hypnotised by this, um, by this pernicious ideology. But I've I've found quite a few things, especially um, in Herzl and in in a few Zionists, where they 
they understand that it's an ideology. They understand that nations are, are you know, are socially constructed. They're not. They're not hypnotized masses. They're not sort of victims of ideology. They they are aware of a lot of the things we are. Um, that that I think is one of the misconceptions mm-hmm. around nationalism. So, in your PhD research, what were the the main sources that you were looking at then? Um, most of it was sort of primary texts by what you'd call political Zionists. So, this was kind of the Western, mainly German language branch of Zionism that saw it as a a diplomatic movement to you know sort of get basically to get official permission from global institutions. What was it? Um, uh, they wanted sort of a, a homeland secured under public law was the phrase, um, I think. Um, and they, so there, it was very much the, the official branch of it. And so I was looking at the stuff that they wrote for publication on it. So this was articles that they wrote um the the Jewish state, which is this, which is Theodor Herzl's very famous pamphlet that's largely considered to have started Zionism, but then also Herzl's diaries, which weren't, you know, they 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 showed they um, presented themselves as, uh, you know, sort of his private thoughts and his private reactions, but it's it's fairly clear that they were intended for publication and as a record of the Zionist movement. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't an unusual thing for a person's diaries to be published posthumously if they were mm. a person of note. So they, as a collection of people, they definitely had an idea of themselves as a coherent movement laying something down for the future. Uh, very much so, yeah. Um, I mean, they, they very often treated themselves as a... Uh, national movement Um, and then I think especially with Herzl the big thing that he is I mean he wasn't the first Zionist he wasn't the first person to have the idea of Jews going back to Israel or or what is now Israel he wasn't the first to have any of the ideas um, and he knew this um, but he was the person who pulled the movement together Mm -hmm. Um, and he was the one that basically organized the conferences um, and you know sort of used his existing fame as a sort of a, a journalist and a, um, a sort of a playwright to give it some momentum. Okay now I know how I would go about analyzing this kind of text from a historian point of view um, I also moved from sort of German studies into history which you know because we were on the same course but that was for the benefit of the listeners when you're looking at one of these political texts what sort of questions are going through your mind what sort of questions are you asking of it I mean the the big question that my my PhD was asking is what did these people actually think you know a country was not so much what did they think a state was but what did they think a nation was and sometimes they will just openly tell you this they'll you know like they'll they'll be making explicit arguments about their conception of a nation so um uh it's max nordau so he was sort of 
he was sort of the second in command of the of the movement had a absolutely incredible beard um and he <laughs> that's good information <laughs> you should see it it's it's, it's got a it's got a center parting anyway he um he's responding to this question like you know what's the point in a jewish state what's the point in the zionist movement and he says and focus zabstrak like uh, a nation or a people is an end in itself the you know sort of peoples don't exist for a purpose they just exist mm. um so sometimes they'll say sort of explicit things like that and other times you'll sort of see it implied in um you know what they think uh no what they think a nation can achieve or what they think they they need to do to achieve one or how they can go about it so my my absolute favorite passage or one of my one of my favorite passages in Hazel's diaries is um he's he's got quite contemplative and he's saying he's um he starts talking about Bismarck and he says, um, so he says, um, what was the, the German empire um, made out of? Uh, and he basically sort of concludes that it was made out of, you know, parades and patriotic songs <laughs> and black, red and gold ribbons. And that the idea had already been planted there and all Bismarck had to do was shake the tree, basically. Um, but involved in this is this idea that the, you know, German national identity was constructed, that it was, it wasn't something that was there. The concept actually had to be made. And this isn't, you know, this isn't, you know, Benedict Anderson saying this, this is a you know, turn of the century leader of a nationalist mm. movement. So he's, He's not analysing something that exists. He's looking, you know, he's reverse engineering the German state. He's saying, okay, this is how it was made. This is how we're going to do it. And so he's, it's again, the, you know, this question of what does they, what does he want to achieve? Uh, what, you know, what does he think a nation is? Yeah, it sounds really modern. It does, doesn't it? It it sounds like. I mean, it does sound like it could have come out of Benedict Anderson or Ernest mm. Gellner or any sort of modern scholar of nationalism. He's saying nations are a social construct, but he's not saying let's deconstruct them. He's saying this is how they're constructed. Let's get constructing. Um, and this this is quite... This goes against a lot of, as I said earlier, this is, goes against a lot of my, you know, the preconceptions I came with about the people of that time mm -hmm. being naive about nationalism, being swept along by it, whereas they weren't. They weren't being swept along. They were, they were holding the broom. I think a lot of it it's, is, is to do with how kind of young um, nationalism was. I mean... This was, I mean, Hazel was mostly writing in the 1890s. So the the unification of Germany was in living memory. I mean, he was born in 1860. So he was born, he was sort of 11 when Germany was unified. He was born, he, you know, he was older than Italy, basically. Um, and he also, 
he was an Austrian. So he, although he was very inve- invested in, you know, sort of German culture, and I guess you you couldn't really be an Austrian at that time without, you know, looking over at what was going on in Germany in the same way you can't really be British without having a rough idea of American politics. He, you know, he, he knew what was going on and he had a, he had an eye, at least, at the very least, an eye on a, you know, sort of modern nation state while also having, you know, while also coming from the perspective of an old multinational empire. So he, I mean, it's it's worth remembering that in in the in you know in the nineteen thirties, Europe was made up of nation states behaving as nation states. It was after sort of you know sort of Wilsonian nationalism and all the sort of the sort of class of nineteen eighteen. Whereas in the eighteen nineties, you know there were there were places that were nation states and there were a lot of places that weren't. So you, it was more like you could sort of see that there was a menu. You could see that there were different models of polities that you could be using. So the so nationalism, it felt like a new invention. You could sort of you a lot of people could just remember how it came about. There were a lot of other people saying, this is how it came about, let's do the same thing. So, you know, for example, Czech nationalists within the Hungarian Empire, and he Herzl did follow sort of those debates as well. Um, you, it was in an environment where people were arguing the case for a nation state. They were arguing the case against the nation state, and so you had this situation that you didn't have in the same way in the nineteen thirties. Like you could forget that the nation state was a construct and, and not the natural state of the th- of things in a way that you couldn't when you were you know in a multinational empire you know seeing them prop- crop up mm-hmm. you've used the word arguing quite a lot who were they arguing with i guess i'm asking what's the sort of audience for this kind of thing and uh, it, it depends what argument you're talking about so um uh, the, I think the one I uh, referred to was um, sort of Czech nationalism, and a lot of so uh, one of the things that Hetzel got interested in, one of the news stories that he just started writing a lot about in his diaries was it was called the Sprachstreit, like the the language argument, and it was I think it was basically to do with in Czech speaking areas of the Habsburg Empire, they were making Czech a language of administration alongside German and some German officials are saying, well, now we can't do our job because none of us speak any of this <laughs> terrifying, unpronounceable language. You know, we, 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 we can't say the funny sound and they were, they were. Now you're st- just showing off. I'm just showing off. Um, but you know, they, there was an, it was an argument about sort of how much legitimacy the Czech language should have in administration um, and obviously there were similar ones with the Slovenes and Ruthenians and all the different minorities of it, of the um, Habsburg Empire. Um, but this was an argument that was going on, like what should be the official language of administration, which in most, you know, which is a, a much more complicated and a much more necessary question in a multinational empire than mm. in your sort of standard nation state. 
But I mean, the other the other arguments that they they got into were things like, okay, so one of the the odd Theodore Herzl is is actually quite a weird figure with a weird history and sort of quite a weird mindset. Um, but one of the things when he was um, when he was uh, a student, he was in one of these sort of German nationalist dueling societies, um, which he. I can't remember. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly why he got kicked out, but I think he was getting annoyed that they were getting increasingly anti-Semitic. Um, there was some Wagner involved. I think. I think it was a speech at. Um, uh, yes, there was a speech at. Uh, in celebration of Wagner's birthday or um, anniversary of his death or something, and some extremely anti-Semitic things were said. Um, Theodor Herzl got very annoyed about this and um, wrote, you know, wrote an angry letter and then got kicked out for having written the angry letter. And he thought, okay, my um, my Burschenschaft dueling society days are behind me. Um, but you know, he was in he was in one of these dueling societies, and there's a rec- there's a record of him staging a bit of a climb down, um, and it. It seems not. There's not a record of what he was climbing down from, but it's implied that he'd said some things that were very strongly in favour of, you know, sort of, un, you know, a unified German-speaking world, which is then an act of subversion towards the Austrian crown. Um, so he got he got very into this sort of nation-state idea when it was German-speaking, you know, the German-speaking world. But this was in tension with, you know, the model of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And sort of later in life, he was, you know, quite he quite fond of the, the Habsburg crown. So the this tension between German identity and uh, Austro-Hungarian imperial identity, this tension was going on in public discourse. It was heavily policed and it was also going on inside people as well um and then of course add to the fact that theodor herzl was jewish and born in budapest and on occasion when he really wanted to able to sort of write and speak fluently in hungarian um there was a lot of mishmash and argument going on inside you know sort of inside people and inside communities yeah i guess that shouldn't be too surprising really because okay what with stuff going on in britain at the moment which i'm not going to get into too much um there seems to be this idea that you should just have one coherent identity and that anything more than that makes you a bit strange and Mm. conflicted and possibly a bit treacherous like if you try to be two things you're necessarily less of either one of them Mm. and i think this is being presented as if you know it's always been that way and that's absolutely not my experience through reading, mm. you know, and re- researching things similar to you. I mean, this this is the thing. Like, um, I mean, Herzl, again, he was between these two camps. He was sort of looking at a world where the nation... He was, I mean, he was very much a modernist. He, he, he loved modernity. He got really excited about having a bike. Um, it, was, it was really, he was really into his tech. 
So he loved modernity and he saw this new, modern, rationalizing system, the nation state, but he was very much embedded in the the old order. And the old order was, it was messy. It was messy because human existence is messy and human identity is messy. And being Jewish, Hungarian, German and Austrian, at once and a particular type of Jewish and not entire and also an atheist probably I think is not entirely clear about it being all of those things at once was normal um mm-hmm. it was it was a it, it was quite a lot to have on your plate but it was not a particularly unusual plate and he was looking at this modernizing system that's like you're basically going to be one thing you're going to have one nationality and one religion and you're going to have one main language and the others will be, you know, sort of useful skills you acquire. I think especially with Herzl, but with other Zionists as well, the extent to which they looked at the um, at the nation state as a modern thing and as a modernizing project is quite significant. I got slightly distracted there by the image of somebody who's very into dueling also being excited about bikes. Um, he wasn't that into dueling. Like he did, apparently he, you know, he did it a bit, you know, because that was his social circle. I mean, again, this is the kind of trivia you end up with on a PhD. Theodor Herzl was a very bad swordsman. Like he, they, I think they had to make a slight exception for him to get him into this society. Um, which, I mean, that's, that's significant to, if you want to see the rate of, social change that's going on um so at the start they were willing to make an exception for a jewish candidate for membership who was bad at fencing to let him in and then later on i mean you know like within a a university from the start of a degree to the end of a law phd within that space of time they were parting ways with him in a fight over the the dueling society's anti-semitism so like again this is another one of the the things that sort of surprises you when you look at this at time in depth anti-semitism wasn't a thing that was just sitting lurking there it was a thing that grew and you know it was a word that got coined and a thing that started happening and started taking off there was more anti-semitism in germany in the 1890s than there was in the 1840s Mm. it's quite easy to understand it as this sort of age-old force that's just there and as we get more modern it disappears but no it it fades away and it comes back and it it ties itself to other things that are going on so cycling back to what you said about the the humor that creeps into some of this writing how do you go about analyzing that if most of what you're reading is written entirely straight completely serious how do you then interpret what happens when somebody unexpectedly tells a joke i mean he he doesn't unexpectedly tell jokes and it doesn't creep in i mean firstly he wrote he wrote stage comedies. That was one of the things he was famous for before he became a Zionist. But he he also wrote one tragedy, which was about a young Jewish man dying in a pistol duel for the, you know, for his honour as a Jew. And he wrote a utopian novel, which is 
quite bad, but also a very weird and quite remarkable utopian novel for how tame it is. I can talk about that for ages. But he, you know, he wrote a play and a novel explicitly for not necessarily Zionist, but for sort of Jewish identitarian causes. The play, even though the play was a tragedy, he put comic relief in there. There's like three characters in the in his utopian novel who are there mainly to tell to tell jokes you know and they, and they have different ways of telling jokes which which serve different sort of narrative and political functions what's what's interesting about the um the utopian novel especially is that a lot of the jokes that he does and a lot of the ways he uses jokes are not even anti-jokes, they're just, they are a statement against jokes. One of the characters is this sort of odd Prussian aristocrat who lived in America for too long and it went a bit weird, who just, he loves to make stupid jokes and, you know, sort of off-colour puns and things like that. He's sort of sometimes a bit casually anti-Semitic or mostly sort of misanthropic. And then he gets one round to this lovely utopian society that the Jewish people has built in in Palestine. Um, but he just, he does these sort of light-hearted, silly puns and he nudges you and you know, what do you think of that one? And he's, he's sort of annoying but endearing. And he, you know, sort of his job is to be the person who is least likely to be one round to this utopia but is anyway but then there's two more joking characters and there you mainly see them not in the utopian society but in this kind of very dismal very pessimistic portrayal of jewish life in vienna before they build this utopian society um and so these these you you meet them at this this dinner party and they're basically the entertainment for the dinner party they're they're billed as like the two wittiest men in Vienna and they apparently hate each other yet get invited to the same dinner parties, which, which seems quite a tragic existence. Um, but one of them, one of them is called Grun, Green um, and he just, he, you know, he just does a lot of bad puns. And the other one is called Blau, um, Blue, and he's basically a caricature of um of a a particular austrian intellectual who'd been quite critical of zionism called karl kraus um and he this this character he's much more he does sort of very snarky humor and makes fun of people um and like gets clipped around the ear for it on occasion and herzl uses these to say you know, when we're in diaspora, when we're, you know, like when when we're living in Vienna as semi-outsiders, this is the height of our culture. You know, this guy snarking at everyone and this guy making bad puns, this is what passes for high society. And they actually do tell some quite, some quite sophisticated jokes. Like Blau gets probably the one really, really good like solid joke that um in the whole in the whole novel um but they're there not to be funny in their own right they're there for zionists to laugh at 
Um, they're there as a caricature of all the guys at dinner parties who practically laugh you out of the room when you bring up a Jewish state in Palestine. And that's that's quite fascinating for me that Herzl mm. is he's laughing at people who tell jokes when it's quite a a convoluted model of humor. Mm. Do you want to hear the, the best joke in Alt Neuland? I thought you'd never ask. Okay. So, all right. Basically, um, this, uh, this, old, this old rabbi has been talking about how terrible things are in Moravia and how much anti-Semitism there is, and he quietly suggests this movement where they're, you know, they're going to build a Jewish state in Palestine, and everyone starts laughing at him and making jokes at his expense. And... Um, and uh, then one guy's like, um, I might, I think I'm going to be a, the, the Jewish ambassador to Vienna. And another one's like, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be an ambassador to, uh, yeah, I think I'm, I'm going to be the Jewish ambassador to Vienna as well. And we go, oh, me, me, me. And then, um, you know, Blau slash Karl Kraus goes, gentlemen, I'm sorry to inform you. I don't think the Austrian state will tolerate so many Jewish ambassadors. <laughs> it's it's a brilliant bit of satire. It's a bit of satire that does actually brings it brings them down to earth. Actually, it it sort of says, yeah, look, you are still living in an anti-Semitic society. You you are, you know, you are not taking an important thing seriously. But then, Blau is also the butt of the joke because he's still not taking it seriously. He's He's signaled his awareness of the problem, but he's still not getting on side with, you know, the the utopia that they're going to have 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like the, the even though Herzl didn't like humor and seems quite hostile to complex humor, the jokes that he gets in and the way he uses satire is really, really complex. So one thing I like people to do once they've got through a PhD and successfully out of the other side is to ask if they have any advice for people who are still in that process. Hmm. I mean, the first thing I'd say is basically if you're just starting a PhD and you think, Oh my God, I'm too stupid to be a person who has a PhD, which everyone will think you're right because you're about to spend three four years getting cleverer and you won't you often don't feel the information going in phd is quite a slow process and you're just you are bombarding yourself with knowledge you're bombarding yourself with new information and new thoughts you're processing it all the time and after a while your topic Asking you sort of how much do you know about your topic, it's like asking a fish what water tastes like. You're you're swimming in it and you don't you don't perceive yourself knowing more about it. And I, I do remember so my first year we had sort of a department symposium and um, the topic was anxiety. And I've got loads in my PhD about anxiety now, but at the time, you know, like this was a, a nationalist movement formed in a very anxious period under the threat of like rising anti-Semitism. Anxiety is everywhere, but I was thinking, 
I've got I've got nothing to say about anti <laughs> about anxiety. I have nothing to say about anxiety, and didn't contribute anything. So I thought I don't have any new information. I don't. I'm too early on in this thing. I don't have anything to contribute. And then I was sitting in this thing, and everyone was talking, and there were I, you know, they were talking about all different things in German literature and culture, and I was thinking I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about that. Oh, there's so many things I don't know about. And then, you know, I started talking to my friend, talked to her a bit about my topic, and she was going, "Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, oh no, that's interesting. Oh, that's new to me." And I realised, like, it took me a while to realise just how much I had found out about my tiny niche area of you know, the history of German political thought. And, but I think, yeah, you, you will feel stupid a lot of the time because you don't feel yourself getting more knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only time I started to feel that I was starting to learn things that other people didn't know and that I had a bit of a purpose in the whole thing was chatting to people over a drink at the end of a conference. Mm. and that's it's only when you kind of compare your what you're doing to what somebody else is doing and if you can get past that initial thing so occasionally you'll start talking to someone and you'll explain what your research is on and then they will just vomit on you all of the information that they know about your topic and then they'll wander off and talk to somebody else so avoid those people but if you get talking to someone who's genuinely interested in what you're doing and will ask you a few questions about the bits that interest them and you can start an actual conversation then you Hmm. kind of realize partly what the purpose of this whole exercise is and just how much you've picked up and how your ideas map onto somebody else's ideas and all the things yeah. that can fire off between you. And it's like, ah, right, this is what we're doing here. I mean, the the ones who, who vomit everything they know about your topic, I'd say go easy on them because one of the reasons to do that is they're like, oh, here's a thing you're interested in. Why don't I give you all of this evidence that I'm interested in it too? You know, they they've found something that they're a little bit interested in that they've that they know stuff on, and they they want they want to show off. I mean, some of it is I'm going to I'm going to teach you how to do your own area of expertise. Uh-huh. Some some of it is a mixture of the two. It's sort of okay if I if I show off how invested I am in this in this cool thing, maybe this cool person will learn a tiny bit from me, and then they'll respect me a bit more. But yeah, maybe that's a more generous interpretation than I'm able to have in the moment. Um, I mean, this maybe says more about me than anything else, but I think a lot of the ways experts or aspiring experts or learner experts interact is to do with, I, you know, not wanting to look stupid in front of the other expert. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot of that going on. And sometimes the the way you have to do that is you have to say, you, know, you have to go back into undergraduate mode and you have to do what was expected of you, you, you know, the first time you started interacting with people who had PhDs, which is, look, look, this is everything I know about this subject. Please, please tell me I'm relatively smart. Like, I did the reading, honest I did. Yeah, exactly, yeah. 
I, you know, like, because I mean, that's that's most people's first experience of academia, desperately, desperately trying to tell a, you know, tenured professor of something a thought that they haven't had themselves. <laughs> One thing I really enjoyed about tutoring was interacting with students who who did that for me who told me things that I didn't know Mm. and who came up with ideas about things that I hadn't thought about um yeah and I think when you're when you're coming fresh to a topic or when you're reading around on a topic that you haven't looked at in a while you are starting from quite a low bar again in the same way that some of your students are so it's not like we just carry around all of this knowledge with us all of the time and yeah. we're on like peak analysis mode all the time, whatever we're reading. You know, we are looking at these things fresh that mm. week, that fortnight, the same time that the students are. And so you can have a genuine exchange of of ideas and, and different yeah. perspectives. Yeah, but it 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 often I mean, for when you're when you're lecturing, it does kind of feel like that. Um, it does feel like you're, you're, you know, sort of, you're in, you're inducting, you know, these, these young people into the, into this world of higher learning. And you're saying like, this is, this is, you, this is a sample of what I do and how I think and how I become a learned person in this field. And, um, this is, this is your chance to become part of this community of practice to, to learn and to share your learning and that's that's a really nice way for us to think about it but when you're an undergrad you're thinking wow this person's really clever i hope they don't think i'm dumb (laughs) yeah definitely my experience the whole way through undergraduate and most of it being in a foreign language really didn't help me in that respect oh yeah yeah it's for me sort of sometimes it would be Sometimes I'd feel very, I'd, I'd feel quite, you know, smug about the point I was making, but I'd be like, I'm very proud of this point. I really, really hope I don't mess up the gender of this noun. Or say a different noun entirely. <laughs> right. Dispensing with that whole topic of undergraduate flashbacks to German grammar and stuff. It'd be nice to end on a fun note. Is there something that you're really excited about and into? at the moment that you'd like to tell people about does not have to be history or research related i mean i can't i do want to say teaching german grammar um it's what is wrong with you (laughs) well um i mean i like doing grammar i like you know like i've liked learning grammar all my life and i like finding ways to teach grammar because i mean most people have this understanding of grammar being basically gap fills. And I do find myself having to make gap fills and go through gap fills with people. I think partly because this is what people expect grammar to be. But for me, sort of grammar is not something that takes place in you know, grammar's not in your mind, grammar is in your heart. Grammar is a thing that you internalise until you can do it without thinking. So for me, a lot of the important part of, one of the important parts of grammar 
is creating contexts where people have to produce it on the hoof, where people have to sort of put the verb at the end while in a panic and trying to think of something. So I, I like devising sort of speaking exercises where you, you have to, where you have to use the grammar. So, uh, for example, I was doing, um, Nebensetzer, uh, subordinate clauses in German, because again, you have to practice putting the verb at the end and restructuring the sentence and using, you know, the correct conjunctions. And one of the main ones that you do this with is because. So I was just put my students in pairs. I said, okay, write down three things that are true. And then in pairs, tell your partner one of these things. Oh, no. Your, your partner. I think I can see where this is going. Your partner has to answer everything you say with why. No. So you just, and then just had the groups like competing to get the longest chain of increasingly bizarre causality. And it's a, like, it's a really, really, it's a silly game. But it's a serious game. You're having to think, you know, at a fair level of depth, you're having to do something that is in and of itself quite difficult, but that isn't particularly linguistically difficult. Um, So you don't fit, you know, sort of the fact that you can't explain why your mum lives in Rotherham, the fact that you can't explain that is no reflection on your your understanding of the language is just it's an inherently difficult thing to do so there's no shame in failing at it but while you're trying to do this difficult thing you're also having to remember to put the verb at the end so you're you're practicing doing the grammar automatically while you're doing something else and you're doing it in a playful setting well alex thank you very much for talking to me this evening um, and taking time away from all of the marking that I'm sure you have to do. Please don't mention that. <laughs> I'm I'm not going to apologise for that. You yeah. you need to do it. I do need to do it. Um, if people would like to find more of your opinions and things, uh, what's the best place for them to find you? Um, I mean, my the, the best plan for that would be don't. But otherwise, I'm R Alex M on Twitter. Like relics and basically. Right. And I will link to that um yeah. in the, the show notes and things. Anyway, so uh yep, thanks again and yeah. enjoy the rest of your evening. Thank you, you too. And thank you for listening to Ten Sixty Six Wasn't All That. This podcast is a one woman, one horsepower operation and does not release episodes on any sort of regular schedule. If you want to know what's happening with future episodes, we're on Twitter at 1066podcast. And if you want more information on the interviewees, the sort of topics we're covering, as well as a link to contact me with suggestions, constructive criticism, who knows, maybe even a few kind words, our website is 1066podcast.blogspot.co.uk. (laughs) 